Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as, when you think of your immaterial soul, what do you mean? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Therese scarpelli Corey of the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Corey, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Corey is the John and Jean Osterley Associate Professor of Thomistic Studies in the Philosophy Department at the University of Notre Dame, and she is joining us to talk about something that's sort of related to what we talked about last time with Mary Eberstadt, who spoke about personal identity and the way it's used in different circles in contemporary culture, and it is sometimes used to appeal to a sense of identity which is immaterial, as some kind of true self that is independent of bodily existence. So today we want to have Dr. Corey on to talk about what people mean or don't mean when you ask them, when you think of your immaterial soul or your immaterial existence, what do you mean? So Dr. Corey, you have a way of sort of, you have a way of addressing what a lot of people think of as immateriality, uh, which you call the spooky body view. Is that right? Yes. So the spooky body view of immateriality is I think the unconscious assumption that many of us have about what it means for something to be immaterial. So you imagine how you might have heard of souls being portrayed in uh, literature, for instance. My favorite example of this is The Ghost of Jacob Marley from Dickens' A Christmas Carol. So if you remember how Dickens portrays the ghost in, in his book, he says that you can hear the ghost coming. The ghost is dragging chains and weighed down by them. So you can hear it coming up the stairs. And then when it gets to the door, it goes right through the door and stands in front of Scrooge. And then Scrooge has all these questions going through his head, as, such as, can I give it something to eat? Is it able to sit down? And, and what's interesting about this portrayal is that it imagines the ghost as basically being like a body, right? Like it's Jacob Marley, except with the unusual property of being able to pass through walls. And so what implicitly assumed here is this idea that when we try to picture the immaterial, what we end up picturing is just another body, but we picture that body as drained of substance. So it's able to appear and disappear. It's able to move through walls, um, but we still picture it as taking up space, having shape, having dimension. And all of those are actually characteristics that philosophers would tell us properly belong to bodies. So we might ask ourselves, why do we have to imagine that this also belongs to something immaterial, like a soul? Are souls really like this? Um, but it's it's the, a very common way that people have of imagining the soul and what it would mean for something to be immaterial. And um, so that's why I call it the spooky body view, because it's as though it's a body but it has these spooky properties of being able to just pass through matter. Yeah, people wonder about this from time to time. Like you can see it and you can hear it and it's recognizably the thing that yeah. like was embodied. One of these examples, you know, uh, in cartoons where somebody dies and you can see a little shadow version of yeah. themselves, same shape, same colors, everything just lifting up out of the corpse. There's a, there's a good meme of Winnie the Pooh doing that at one point when people have some experience online that is like an out-of-body experience. But right. I got I got some more examples, which I can run down real quick. Macbeth and Hamlet, a couple of, at least a couple of plays from Shakespeare that uh, invoke something like that. The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, a 1940s movie. Disneyland's Haunted Mansion ride. Casper the Friendly Ghost, which I know you've mentioned as another Casper, example. Yes. Talk. Mm -hmm. Force Ghosts in, Star in the Star Wars movies. Big example there. 
old Obi-Wan Kenobi sitting down on a log is always is always pointed to by Star Wars people. Yeah, and we should be asking ourselves, how can a ghost sit? What does it mean for a ghost to sit? There was a real phase in the 80s and early 90s between uh, Poltergeist, Ghostbusters, and the movie Ghost oh. with Patrick Swayze, and All Dogs Go to Heaven. <laughs> You see how pervasive this is. <laughs> the, the point of going through all these is just to show how second nature it is for us to jump to something like this. Yeah. I got Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I have not seen that, but from what I understand. So the Harry Potter series, plenty of ghosts in Harry Potter. The Ring, series of horror movies mm. from Japan, mm-hmm. I think. Another one I haven't seen. Um, and then The Spirit World from Avatar The Last Airbender, not the one with the blue people. <laughs> okay, <laughs> So that that's a brief, brief summary of spooky body examples. And it seems like it sort of breaks apart bodily and immaterial existence into two kind of like realms, right? Like one with like a very strict divide in between. One that's like normal and then one that sort of behaves unusually and we have to assign it this like special category, right? Right. Now, when Aquinas talks about immateriality, does he understand it as sort of divorced from the rest of reality in this way? No. So so I think Aquinas is offering us a very different perspective. So if we imagine, you know, why many people would want to say there's an immaterial dimension of the human being, often the way that we in our culture today approach the question is we want to say, well, look, science explains all of this stuff. You can put all these objects under microscopes and subject them to all kinds of scientific analysis and chemical analyses and things. And and there's so much to be understood about the material world that science is able to tell us. But then we say, well, can that kind of analysis completely explain everything about the human being? And we might say, well, there's a leftover like consciousness or our ability to appreciate beauty or our experience of the transcendent or of of the presence of God, right? And then we might say, well, those sorts of things can't be explained or put under a microscope. And so there must be something else besides material being that we're familiar with. And it sounds like that's kind of like a fallback that relies on this inexplicableness from an empirical perspective. Exactly. So it's as though we're positing something that we can't experience or explain in any way because we don't, we can't find any other kind of explanation. And it's a little bit like the way that scientists, how an astronomer would be able to identify that there's a black hole, right, in outer space where you can't see the black hole directly. But what you can notice is that light bends in a certain way. So you say there must be a black hole there. Yeah, And that's how a lot of people think about immateriality. Well, science can't explain everything about the human being, but so there has to be some leftover. We don't know what that is, but we're just going to call it immaterial being. It's weird. It's spooky, but it's a, it's a fallback, like you said. But Aquinas's view is totally different. So for him, When we're talking about the immaterial dimension of the human being, we're not talking about anything that we don't personally encounter and experience ourselves. So this is something we are already coming across. Yes. Okay. It's already part of our experience. It's just as real to us as tables and chairs and and the parts of our bodies that we can feel with our senses. So for Aquinas we're able to experience our own experiencing. So when I'm having a thought, so let's say I'm thinking about the Pythagorean theorem, heaven forbid, I mean, (laughs) thankfully I'm a philosopher, I don't have to do a lot of math, so I don't need to think about the Pythagorean theorem. Um, But suppose I were, right? Now, in that thought, 
Aquinas would say, I'm aware of myself having the thought. So it's not as though the thought is just sort of hanging out there invisibly to me. I'm experiencing my own thinking while I'm thinking, right? That thinking is part of my experience. It's just as real part of my experience as the chair I'm sitting in right now or the pressure of one finger on another. So I could like ask myself, why am I thinking about the Pythagorean theorem? Yes. But I can only ask myself that because I am aware that I'm thinking about it and maybe I'm I should think about something else instead. Exactly. Okay. Right. And so that thinking is really part of your, it's something you're experiencing. It's a real thing for you. So for Aquinas, the way that he is going to argue for immateriality or his way into the immaterial dimension of the human being is it's sort of like, look, in the world that we experience, there's different kinds of being. There might be living things like a squirrel or inanimate things like a rock. There might be artifacts like a table, the limbs of my body, there's other human beings. But among the beings that we encounter, one of one of the kinds is the very thinking itself. That's a kind of being that we encounter. And so for him, then the big question is, well, look, the other things in that list, they're all bodies. They have a bodily nature. So bodily natures are extended in space. They take up space. They have dimensions. And so then the question is going to be, well, what about thinking, which is a real kind of being that I experienced? Does that kind of being, does it take up space in the same way? And he's going to say, the answer is no. And if the answer is no, then it's a different kind of being, right? It's a non-bodily being. So for Aquinas, when we say that something is non-bodily or immaterial, that doesn't mean we're saying it's some weird kind of being that we don't know what it is. All it's saying is, here's this familiar kind of being I already experienced, namely thinking. Well, that is non-bodily. It's a different kind of being from the bodily kind. But I can say all kinds of things about what it is. So what else can we say about what it, what it positively is then? Because if we can't say anything physically measurable about it, you know, it's yeah. not, if we're going to avoid the spooky body view, then I don't want to think, okay, there's like a shadowy blue wispy version <laughs> of me that is doing all the thinking while the, the fleshy version of me is sitting here. So what else can we positively say about this, this mental kind of being? Aquinas has a huge amount of things to say about intellectual being and what it, what it means for something to be intellectual. So one of, the, one of the things we can say, and we can verify this by looking at our own experience, is that intellectuality is able to grasp the universal aspects of things. So we're able not just to go through the world engaging with individuals or recognizing and responding to patterns, but we're actually able to have abstract thoughts about treeness, for instance, not just trees, but treeness. And we can ask ourselves, what does it mean to have treeness? What kind of reality is that? So we can ask those kinds of questions. And at the same time, that kind of intellectuality or the capacity to think also enables us to choose freely, Aquinas says, because that kind of being is reflects on itself. It's aware of what it's doing. When I'm thinking, I'm aware of my own thinking. And that means that I know I know I'm judging when I'm actually judging. So when I say, hmm, I'm hungry, and I recognize that about myself, 
I can think of myself as the kind of being that's able to make different kinds of choices about how to satisfy that hunger and when to satisfy it and what to eat. Maybe it's a Friday in Lent and I'm not going to eat meat, right? Or maybe I'm on a podcast and so I'm going to have tea later on, right? But all of this is possible because I'm I'm aware of my own acts of judging and my own acts of being able to relate my actions to specific goals. So that ability to act freely also goes back to the self-reflexive ability that thought has. The dimensions of the human being that are most human and most characteristic of us for Aquinas go back to those features of thought. That's what thinking being is like. Now that's self-reflexive or that reflecting back on oneself that can occur in thought. Does Do we see that in material being? Like I'm trying to think of an example where, I think you've used the example in your talks before of taking a piece of paper and folding it back on itself. And is that is that an example of like self-reflexive activity where it's in contact with itself? It's sort of like for Aquinas, there's lower degrees to which each kind of thing is able to fold back to a certain extent. But only immaterial thought is able to fold back on itself completely. So if you imagine the, I'm glad you brought up the example of the piece of paper, because this is a really nice contrast. Think about your experience of yourself right now, right? Mm -hmm. You're able to utter the word I in the first person. And when you're experiencing yourself doing something, you're able to formulate that as I'm doing something, not it is doing something, not like you're outside yourself looking at yourself, but I am doing something. Not like, or that part of me is doing something while this part of me watches or something like that. Exactly. And what Aquinas notices and, and many other philosophers have noticed is that the ability to reflect on yourself in that way so that it, one and the same entity is both the thinker and what's being thought of, right? Mm -hmm. That requires that the whole be able to grasp the whole. Okay. So if one part were grasping another part, then they would always be outside each other. And the grasping part would be relating to the other one as it, right? It would be standing outside and saying, it's thinking, right? But in order to say, I'm thinking, the whole of me has to grasp the whole. And that's exactly what what a material thing can't do. So if you picture folding a piece of paper, right, you fold it in half, what do you get? One half is in contact with the other half. You fold it again. Now you've still got a quarter that's in contact with the other quarter. You can keep folding it and folding it, but you're only ever going to get a part next to another part. The parts are always going to remain outside themselves. And so in order to have that truly first personal experience that gives us the ability to refer to ourselves as I, that we call selfhood, right? That requires immateriality, right? That this kind of being that's able to grasp the whole of itself with the whole of itself. Okay. That I think makes sense. I think it's hard to grasp because <laughs> like what you yeah. what you're saying just about the material side not being able to do that to be fully like present to itself. It's like so obvious that we just take it for granted and we never think yeah. about the fact that like a piece of paper is never going to be fully like united in all its parts in the same place at the same time because we know it can't be, but we never think about like what would it be like 
if it could. And what you're saying right. is that if it could, then it wouldn't be paper. It wouldn't be material. It would be, it would be thought. It would be pure thought. It would be pure thought. If you are listening to this and you are having trouble grasping this, don't worry. That's normal. It is normal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's not, it's not something new, right? This, is all, this right. is all what Thomas Aquinas said in one of his works on, on knowledge. Yeah, exactly. So this is a, a view that's all the way through his theory of the human person. For him, when we talk about the immaterial dimension of the human person, right? what we're talking about is thought. And so if we imagine, okay, so Aquinas, what do you think of this spooky body view of immateriality? (laughs) What would you want to tell us? How would you want to tell us to think about immateriality instead? I think his answer would be, well, you should think about immateriality as pure thought. So someone dies, the soul leaves the body, right? What's left? Thought, right? So if I think about my beloved deceased grandfather, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, the soul of Papa, hopefully beholding the beatific vision or or being purified, what is that? That's his thought is what's left. And I think this is particularly interesting for Aquinas' understanding of the soul separated from the body by death, because it really underscores how much death takes away from us something that's deeply essential to who we are. So it's not like just shedding a suit of clothes. There's not going to be any kind of immaterial version of the non-thought aspects of your being. Exactly. Like with Jacob Marley, he's not going to have the thing tying up his jaw, the (laughs) the braids, the pigtails or whatever. Like there's no immaterial version of that. And there's no immaterial version of him seeing or speaking either. Right. Yes. There's only thought. That's what's left of the human being after death. And we can see that that thought leftover is not expressive of what a human being should be. And that's why Aquinas really thinks about our existence after death as being radically limited in this way. And this is the importance of the resurrection of the body, that we really need the body in order, we need this embodied existence in order to be fully who we are. It's completely integral to a human being to be more than just thought. It's really easy to fall into one of two extremes, either thought is the highest thing in us, therefore it's the only thing that matters, and if it exists after death, then we're fine. And we don't need the resurrection of the body. Or there's no such thing as thought. It can't be measured. Pure materialism. Right. And this really brings that struggle out. Yeah. And philosophers have struggled with this through the entirety of human history. You know, is it bouncing back and forth between these two poles? And I think what what particularly draws me to Aquinas's theory of the human person is that just how committed he is to trying to bring those two aspects together. And that, yes, thought is the highest thing in us, but the place that we occupy in the ecosystem of God's creation is precisely as embodied thought. Yeah. That's who we are really fundamentally. And so if we're if we sort of discount the bodily aspects of our existence, then in a way we're sort of thinking of ourselves more in the line of angels. And he's very insistent. The human being is not an angel inserted into a body. We are integrally living bodies that are thinking living bodies. And the only living bodies that can participate in this self-manifesting or self-reflexive kind of activity right? by virtue of that rational soul. Exactly. Okay. And that's why one of his favorite descriptions of the, of the human soul is the horizon between the world of bodies and the world of intellects. 
Ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like we join heaven and earth, right, in our very being. A lot of that going around in the church. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, we're we're in the midst of the Eucharistic revival right now, and that you know that's how the mass is often described in a different way. Yes, right. No, it's very interesting. I mean, you you, you could look at this as a kind of Eucharistic dimension of the of the human person, according to Aquinas as well. Yeah, and he also uses it as a justification for why it makes sense for God to become a human being specifically, as opposed to any other kind of creature, because human beings are they have this status in their very being of joining heaven and earth and that's of course what Christ does as as the mediator you know it's funny you start off with one with one little problem we started talking about ghosts and we we wound up talking about basically everything <laughs> <laughs> well i mean this is the wonderful world of of thomas aquinas he's uh, a systematic thinker and you pull one thread and it's connected to everything else yeah exactly well, I think we probably have to leave it there. If nothing else, to give me and our listeners some time to to chew on this and to digest it, because you've given us a lot to think about. Therese, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was really a pleasure. We are continuing our Oscars run-up with last year's Best Picture winner, Coda, released in 2021, directed by Sean Heater. I feel like they center the drama on things that matter. It was like, and I think that they make the stakes sufficiently high. It brings out a personal conflict that had never been able to surface before with each parent. Not like a conflict, a struggle, I guess. Because Ruby gets a scene towards the end with her mother and she gets a separate scene with her father where like their relationships are fully resolved. The one in, the, in Ruby's bedroom with her mother where she asks her mother, like, do you ever wish I was deaf? And her mother says, yes. I thought that conversation was very beautifully done, like modeled like self-effacing honesty and humility really well from a character and the mother who, you know, whose faults we have discussed. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. And there was no fake eureka moment that gives them both an easy way out without having to discuss where they're coming from. It was just very well done and it brought them closer together. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I personally can't relate to it, but that's how I felt about it as an outsider watching it. As a daughter of a mother, did that feel, <laughs> you know, authentic to you? I think it's more as a mother to a daughter. Okay. I feel like, <laughs> I think it's impossible not to have like a desire for connection with your child, right? And I, I could see very easily where, even as like Vivi is one, and there are times when, like she went running to one of the daycare teachers and I was like, she doesn't do that to me. <laughs> Which is silly. Like she, uh. she does plenty of things where like she clearly loves mom. But it definitely like was poignant, just the desire for connection with your kid. And I think in a particular way with, I guess I can't speak for fathers, but like as a mother, there's, I think there's this particular desire for connection with a daughter. We know we're not in the teenage years yet, so you know, I'll keep you posted. But <laughs> even just as you know, a little kid, that desire for them to know how much you love them and for, you know, you see little things that they do and you can't help but be reminded of stuff you did. And then you wonder like, oh, are they going to be into the same things? Like she loves to color. Is she going to be an artist like my husband? Is she going to, she loves to move. Is she going to be an athlete like I was? So I could see where like you could just know Im immediately that if she is not hearing impaired, that it's like there's going to be like a, a rift between you inevitably 
and that that would be a sad moment. And they do a good job of demonstrating that rift, like at the uh, the fall concert where the kids have the mm-hmm. duet that we've seen them practice. I'm really glad they took away the sound to show it from the parents' perspective. Like they are at this concert, which is a long concert. They are seeing people sing these things that they can't hear, and they're just trying to like go along with it and appreciate it as much as they can, which I thought was very well done. And then the audition scene at Berkeley was really well done. I've been to the college parish that is next to Berkeley. Oh, cool. Uh, St. Cecilia is the patron saint of music. They had the best choral accompaniment I've heard in mass, period. And it wasn't even over the top or anything. It wasn't like distracting from the liturgy. It was doing exactly what it was supposed to be doing, and it was perfectly executed. Oh, that's nice. And I'm not, I'm not any kind of music expert, but the song that Ruby chose for her audition song Joni Mitchell's both sides now. Do you have any, like, are you a Joni Mitchell person at all? I'm not. I actually said to Jason while we were watching it, I was like, I feel like Joni Mitchell comes up all the time in movies of Mm. people being like, Joni Mitchell changed my life. I don't think I've literally ever heard a Joni Mitchell song. (laughs) Ever. Had you never heard this song? No, never heard this song. I'm like, I have no idea what Joni Mitchell's music is like. Like, every time it comes up in the movie Love Actually, I'm like, Joni Mitchell, no idea. (laughs) (laughs) For me, she's one of those where, like, I don't know her, like, I can't identify her music, but if you would play Joni Mitchell stuff, I would say, okay, yes, I I know that song. And this is one of those that, like, I feel like I've heard before. I looked up the lyrics because it seemed like this is a very significant song in the story, and I wanted to try and grasp it a little bit better because the way Amelia Jones as Ruby performs it it's beautiful and optimistic and it's this gesture of love to her par- to her family the lyrics of both sides now don't seem to be about that um <laughs> it seems to be like very cynical and agnostic you know i've had the, the good times in love and the bad times in love and i don't really know what it is it feels like throwing up your hands which is not how the the song sounds which is like a big difference between the thing expressed and the mode of expression. Like the mode of expression sounds great. Um, and anyone, anyone can understand it who's like sung along to a, a song on the radio in the car because they liked how it sounded and only later found, it, found out that the lyrics were saying something totally different. <laughs> and this yeah. felt like one of those. But maybe I'm misunderstanding what Joni Mitchell is saying in the lyrics. So I'm, I have no help. I've literally never heard the song before. <laughs> I guess it's an okay song. I mean, it's fine. I think, I mean, Amelia Jones is doing it in three languages at once, musically, in English, and American Sign Language. Yeah, I thought that was a very cool scene. And then you get it again with her one-on-one scene with the father in the bed of the pickup truck after the audition where the father is like he's witnessed that she has put a lot into this and really hasn't been able to grasp the output so he asks her to sing it sing the song again for him this time where he's like feeling her vocal cords and feeling the vibrations in her throat which i thought was like extremely touching and visceral and like this is the only way for him to sort of access this part of his daughter's life and that felt you know now that i think of it it feels kind of true to the experience of being a father in the way that the conversation with the mother felt sort of true to to the experience of being a mother like you have this desire for connection and you have this this one-on-one conversation where you basically accomplish that connection successfully. With the father, there's this huge barrier that has to be, that you attempt to overcome. And, you know, you sort of do, but even as you're overcoming that barrier and finding connection with your kid, like there's still this recognition that it's, you're not fully overcoming that barrier and there's always going to be that separation. 
It's sort of like a, you know, a kid with the face up against the glass at the toy store window. And, you know, you're there, but not quite so close yet so far. And that feels like it's the source of his, um, the source of his pain there. At least that's what, that's what it seemed like it was saying there, which is, you know, particularly true in the case of a deaf parent of a hearing child or a singing child. But I think it's still, you know, more or less universal and maybe why this movie was so well received. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I felt more the perspective of the father actually in that short little scene when the mom comes into the bedroom and she's like, she's my baby. And the dad is sort of like, she was never a baby. And I I felt like, like the singing scene was more of the like culmination of that scene. Like those two feel really connected to me of like, well, I guess it's that the, the like concert itself and the final scene are the dad sort of seeing her very clearly. I feel like the dad sees Ruby much more for like who she is. Yeah. Like the dad just seems to kind of get what's going on better. And I think it's all for him, just the process of letting her go. Which he knows is kind of inevitable. Yeah, I think I think there's that kind of like the the, the sorry. <clears throat> All my like parental oh. hormonal. <laughs> Jason sitting next to me, like, what is going on? <laughs> we gotta stop doing things with kids in it. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm also just like, I cry during movies. So this is like, I'm like re experiencing the movie. I'm like, oh God, I'm like just emotional. I don't even know why this one is so. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> there's nothing going on. Like, <laughs> I think they haven't had, maybe it's this, like, I don't think that that they've had to actually grapple with the idea of her leaving before, where it's like, oh, she's always going to be there. And so I think this is them figuring that out. Yeah. I think it's more sudden for them than for most parents, because most parents generally assume that, but their unique circumstances lead them to believe that, no, she's always going to be here. That's, yeah, that's a good point. So I (laughs) I think it probably does hit them particularly hard there. Everybody who's having kids right now, all going through that all at the same time. Our our age bracket is all in the like, you know, it it seems like little kids are everywhere. Yeah. But that's just because like that's the age bracket. And now, you know, 15 years down the line, it's going to seem like, oh, everyone's like saying goodbye to their kids and they're all like empty nesting. Jeez. I know it's wild. My sister and brother-in-law, my oldest niece is a junior in high school and it's like okay so wow, yeah you're... you guys are like it's coming it's like there yeah <laughs> this this is one of the things like about being a parent that you just can't understand until you're in it i guess the my life is over i have no time i never sleep this kid i you know i never see anybody but my kid um i never get out of the house like going from that to please don't leave this is my my entire life is like you know having <laughs> you here I don't want you to go away. Like, I don't understand the, the, the change, the change from A to B there. Um, or if it's not like a change, if the, like, it's always both. I don't know. I mean, I think that my understanding is like, once the kids are a little, like they start going to school, like life changes. So then it's, then it's like all a different sense. It's, it's the like going from being a baby where it's constant to you get a 10 year interregnum and then then they're like oh my gosh you're leaving this is <laughs> <laughs> okay i think the school part would be great like you, when you can actually have conversations with your kids i think i'd i'd be all right at that part oh yeah before I'm, part, uh, I'm looking for it i mean i think i did not think i was going to like the early stages mm. and i have been pleasantly surprised so you know when it's your own kid 
felt. First, also, it's not like people would be like, do you want to hold my baby? I'm like, not really. Yeah. I feel like my kid, I love like snuggling with Vivi and like, I don't feel weird <laughs> like trying to <laughs> cuddle my own kid. So I do think we need to talk for a second about the Oscars. I got to say, watching this, I can't believe that this was the best picture. (laughs) (laughs) That, I think, negatively impacted my viewing of it, too, because I came to this movie knowing that it already won best picture and expected capital G great things from it. And it was good. It was fine. It's like it's a good movie. I'm just really like... Really? This there was nothing better? This is like I said, I am a like I will stand up for the high school uh format any day of the week. I thoroughly enjoy it. I thought this was a great movie. I cried, you know, it hit all the right things, but <laughs> it's a great family message, like there's lots of good things about this movie, but I'm not sure I'm like seeing Oscar Best Picture winner. Yeah, especially because it's such a departure from the tenor of that particular Academy Awards show, which was all like Will Smith slap aside. It, the <laughs> the show was all like, these aren't your grandpa's Oscars. We have, you know, this is different and new. And Best Picture winner, Coda. Safe, comforting family movie. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, this is very strange. Like, granted, the only other... Oh, no. King Richard was also nominated last year. I'm just looking at the other nominees. Nightmare Alley. No idea. Don't look up. Meh. Dune. But then West Side Story, King Richard. I'm like, okay, those were both solid films. Those are the two, King Richard and West Side Story. Dune Dune Part 1 was great, but it was only Part 1. So you got to kind of wait until Mm -hmm. Part 2 comes along before you give them movie awards. With King Richard and West Side Story, I think those are both. Oh, yeah. Both of which we talked about on the podcast in episode 82 and 84. So you can go back and listen to those. But I think both of those were probably, in hindsight, better candidates for Best Picture than the eventual winner, which, again, was fine. (laughs) Yeah, it's perfectly good movie. I think Amelia Jones was robbed. She should have gotten a nomination for Best Lead Actress anyway. Like, at least a nomination. Oh, she wasn't nominated. Interesting. Yeah, I thought she absolutely crushed it. Troy Kotzer, the dad, won for Best Supporting Actor. Which I think was deserved. He did a generally great job. Yeah. Not that either of us have like personal experience to draw from, but as outside viewers, how do we feel about the portrayal of deaf people in the movie? I mean, I felt like it was fairly positive. I mean, I guess I, the the things that felt, I guess, most notable to me were just how much of their life you see. And it felt, I guess, again, like I don't have firsthand experience, so I can't really say, but it didn't feel stylized or it didn't feel sort of like tokenism to me. It just, it felt like you were getting a little feeling of how they live and communicate with each other. And I guess I, I did know that they are all deaf actors other than obviously Ruby. And so I guess I sort of trusted that like they wouldn't make a movie that they were like, nobody would do this. (laughs) And I feel like the extensive ASL and just like how physical it is, was the other thing that really stood out to me. It was just like, because there's no vocal intonation, there's just like so much else that goes into it. It's not just hand gestures. Yeah, like you're really, your whole self is like bound up in expressing language that way. So I did a little bit of reading about just how this movie was received, which is generally positive, but there were a couple of angles of criticism. Uh, One from Leonard Davis, a CODA and disability scholar wrote, This genre of films is glued to a different reality. It is as if birds were obsessed with making movies in which humans were miserable about their inability to fly. So birds that would be hearing people making a movie about uh, humans that would be deaf people about their inability to fly hearing. 
which I thought was an, an interesting critique that they sort of feel like if deaf people are going to be in movies, it always has to be about whether, you know, some difficulty about not being able to hear rather than just having deaf people in movies and it not being an issue. So I thought that was an interesting angle. The other one, which is not as significant, but it's just a, <laughs> just a detail. The uh, Americans with, the Dis- with Disabilities Act of, I think, 1990 requires that for like things like doctor's appointments and court hearings, they provide an interpreter. <laughs> so Ruby does not need to be present for those things mm. and interpret like intimate medical details between her father and her father's doctor. Yeah, definitely. So that one jumped out apparently at deaf viewers of the movie that was like, oh, come on, you can't. You can't make the daughter come along. Easy, unforced error. Although they do also seem to make the point that like her parents are extremely open about that. And so they would. I could also see like in the characterization them being like, we don't need an interpreter. She can come along and do Maybe it. We can do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's po- that's possible. Yeah. At least they make it, they sell it a bit. I'll give them that. But no, I think that's an interesting point about if you have deaf people in a movie, it's sort of like about them being deaf. Um, whereas there should be, there, you know, it would be, it would be nice if there were more movies that approached deaf people the way this movie approaches New England sports fans. It's not about <laughs> being a New England sports fan. It's just that they're there. They're a natural feature. They're, you know, part of the landscape. <laughs> They exist. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I live in Frederick, Maryland now, and Frederick is actually home to the Maryland School for the Deaf. And it is very interesting because oh. there's a very significant deaf community here. So, like, at church, at the 9 a.m. mass, they have an interpreter there in, like, the side where, like, all the families with little kids also end up sitting. So, you mm-hmm. were like, perhaps that's by design. You've got the people who can't be bothered <laughs> by the little kids and the little kids, which are next to the door. <laughs> it, it is just interesting when you lit, have, like, a community where just a lot of people you come across, like, regularly the girl at the checkout at grocery store is deaf. And I've kind of found myself, like, oh, learning how to say thank you because I, like, recognize her and know that she... You know, I mean, she seems very good at lip reading, so she's able to communicate quite well. But it is kind of interesting just like normalizing the experience Mm. of people who have some kind of a experience that's not yours. It would be it'd be interesting to see more of that in pop culture. Okay, well, I think we can leave it there. Kara, thank you once again for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.